Hello, and welcome to The Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Canadian Story. Today, I'm joined by Elizabeth Perrin-Snyder. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you, and hi there. So, Elizabeth, for those who don't know you, which I'm sure is pretty much most of us, um, what is your background? Who are you? What do you do? Uh, so I am a nurse with about 47 years of experience in all sectors, started off in, in acute care, moved to some community nursing, and then the final probably 30 years of my career were in long-term care, uh, both in management and then also as a consultant with Waterloo Wellington Lynn. Um, my area of expertise really ended up being dementia care, care of the elderly, um, care of people with multiple disease, comorbidities, and so on, but mainly with a focus on dementia. Okay. So what I would love to talk about today is to a regular Joe Blow like me, there seems to be at least some amount of disconnect between perhaps what is being reported in kind of legacy media and what is actually happening within the healthcare system at the very least, and we'll, we'll say in Ontario, but probably we can extrapolate it to Canada and perhaps a lot of the world. Um, there, there seems to be a disconnect between what is actually happening and what is being reported. So why don't we go back to the beginning of the pandemic? Um, could you explain to me what your job was at that point and what kind of things you were observing? Sure. So at that point, um, I was doing a consultative role, which included consultation of frail elderly dementia and younger dementia patients, both within acute care settings, hospitals, and long-term care. So under my purview, I had about 17 or 18 long-term care homes. I worked with something called BSO teams or Behavioral Support Systems Ontario teams in dealing and managing with managing behaviors, which often occur with dementia patients. And uh, the other part of my role was education. So education for dementia, education for all kinds of things like delirium, behaviors, um, nutrition, all kinds of disease entities, many different disease processes like Parkinson's disease, Lewy body, and so on. So at the beginning of the, the pandemic, I think homes really didn't know what to do. And I remember early on, I think it was probably maybe February, March, we were actually doing an education system, uh, an education process for hospital staff. Um, and all of a sudden, most of those managers got calls from their various hospitals to tell them that we were now in full-blown pandemic mode. And uh, at that time then, we as consultants were no longer able to go into both long-term care or hospitals. So my work became fairly quiet um, until people figured out what to do and what systems were supposed to be put in place. So there was an offer of redeployment, first of all, to telehealth. And I agreed to do that for about six weeks and then re being redeployed into long-term care situations where they really needed help when we were in full-blown pandemic mode. And that would probably be around May or so. 
Um, so long-term care was kind of scrambling to figure out what to do again with new Ministry of Health guidelines and procedures being put in place, all the masking, all the isolating and so on, what to do with visitors, volunteers and students. And that probably took a couple of weeks to figure out. Um, all the all the while we were still meeting on Zoom, we were still having lots of care conferences and lots of different things, but not going in personally into long-term care or into the hospital. Um, so that was kind of in the early days. Um, then in May, um, the one redeployment was into a long-term care home. Do you want me to kind of launch right into that? Yeah, sure. Go ahead, please. Okay. So so uh we were, a number of us agreed to go into COVID situations in long-term care. And what the media was portraying at that time was that long-term care was in big trouble because there were a lot of patients that now had COVID. So again, you know, we were still pretty early, that was 2020, pretty early into the whole narrative of the pandemic. And most of us really bought into the entire narrative that, oh my goodness, long-term care is in trouble, hospitals are in trouble, how can we help, what can we do, and so on. And I think for me, part of my eyes being opened were the day that I went into the long-term care home, again, with a number of other team members also redeployed to go and help. And I'm going to shut that off, sorry. That's um, no problem. I'm uh, really familiar with how long-term care runs, the staffing, the logistics, the issues and the problems. Um, I've been working in long-term care homes for many, many years. So what I saw when I went in there was anything but normal. So patients or residents, as we call them, um, were wandering about in quite a state of distress. All of the staff were in full PPE, so they had gowns, gloves, face masks, and face shields on. Many of the patients or the residents were being reshuffled or relocated. So at that point, they were being transferred to COVID areas and non-COVID areas, so moving people to different floors. Um, at that point, homes were basically disallowing anybody to go into the home, including family members. So all of the other auxiliary staff that were normally supporting long-term care homes, such as PSW students, nursing students, visitors, volunteers, and family members, they were all completely banned from going into a home. So what I saw were residents that were wandering around in a state of utter confusion. And these are people who have some or a lot of dementia anyway. And now we as staff are all walking around like space cadets. It looked like a lunar lab somewhere with everybody walking around in, in level four isolation here. And these residents just did not know who we were or what we were. Communication with someone with a dementia is very difficult at the best of circumstances. But now add a face mask, face shield, no ability to read a person's face. And that for a person with dementia or a visual impairment or a hearing impairment has no ability now to interpret or to understand what any staff member is saying. The other thing that was pretty horrendous, and this was again a Ministry of Health guideline, 
was that there was to be no more congregate dining. So in most long-term care facilities, residents are encouraged to be out of their room most of the day, to have some socialization, to have recreational activities. And part of that is the congregate dining experience with other residents. So in doing that, a number of things are accomplished. People get to see other people, even in their dementia, but staff also have the ability now to help four people at one table because the majority of those people really need assistance with dining. Take that away, put people now into their individual rooms, take away students, staff, family members, volunteers. Those people were now fed in their rooms with one PSW or staff member to one resident. And that is an impossible task. When you have a fully staffed home, complete with all of the auxiliary staff and all of the other help that students and family members provide, you can actually feed and hydrate people. Take all those things away, that, that is impossible at best. And what I saw when I went in there were residents who were dehydrated, were delirious, and had become very ill. I tried to feed and, and hydrate a number of people when I was in there. I was having no success whatsoever. And these, these people were, afterwards we heard from the military when they went in that people were actually dying of delirium and dehydration. Um, right. When, so so what, what gives space to a policy like this? Because it would, it would appear that anyone within the, the home would understand that the the snap policy that came from i guess top down it, it wouldn't take long to observe that it wasn't a good situation it, it wasn't working in the home did that did that policy come from health canada where did it come from that would have come from the ministry of health and long-term care um so from the minister of health and long-term care and it was all done under the guise of safety. We now need to keep these residents safe. So safe from COVID. Right. Um, it's But it's one-dimensional thinking because safe from COVID, but dehydrated is also bad. <laughs> yeah. And and I think, you know, this staffing has, has been a long-time problem in long-term care. Long-term care homes have traditionally been understaffed and for years, there have been lobby groups like ONUS, the Long-Term Health Care Association, and so on, being uh, approaching ministries to ask for more staffing, to lay out some of the intrinsic problems, and so on. And much of that has fallen on deaf ears. All of a sudden now, we have a premier who is highlighting long-term care because of the COVID deaths in long-term care. And now, all of a sudden, we have to keep people safe. So... Under the auspices of keeping people safe, we are now isolating them from everything that's familiar. We're putting staff in PPE so they can't even recognize their familiar staff members. And we're actually, in my opinion, not giving them anything preventative in terms of ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, or any prophylaxis that can now help if we really do believe there's a pandemic here. And not only are we doing that, we're taking away every support. One day when I was in there, two residents died that day. One was end-stage cardiovascular disease and one other resident had stage four pancreatic cancer. Both were expected deaths and yet they were COVID positive. So they both were labeled as COVID deaths. And this went on and on and on. 
Okay, so let's let's focus on that distinction. How early on did you observe that um, people who were passing of a comorbidity or an expected um, an expected passing due to a disease, due to their age, whatever it happened to be, being labeled as COVID? How early did you observe that? Uh, probably from about that point on. Now, I wasn't actively going in regularly into long-term care. But anecdotally from colleagues, I was hearing that people were dying. And most of these people, you have to understand, are in their 80s and 90s. Every year, influenza takes many, many people in a home. These people have three, four, five, sometimes eight comorbidities, sometimes more. They're frail, they're elderly, and their deaths are often anticipated and expected. People don't live for 10 years of long-term care. So okay, so... I think it's maybe important to establish a baseline then. Um, Pre-pandemic, let's say a patient had heart disease and hypertension and was obese and then died of a heart attack. What would their death certificate reflect? Uh, it would probably reflect that they died of end-stage cardiovascular disease or they died of all of the causes of hypertension, so blood clotting, lots of those kinds of things. So whatever whatever their comorbidity was, um, they may have had a secondary diagnosis. So if they died of influenza, influenza may have been the final straw, but often people that are frail, elderly with multiple disease entities, they can die of a nosebleed and yet their diagnosis would not be died of a nosebleed. Right, okay, so the question then becomes, how does the pre-pandemic practice for labeling cause of death differ from the now existing practice and labeling people as having died from COVID? Does okay. it differ? Yeah, it, it does differ because first of all, people that were sick with or, or that were labeled to be sick or ill with COVID, it was based on a positive PCR test. Prior to 2020, a person was diagnosed based on their symptoms. We never based a disease or an illness on a faulty PCR test. So now all of a sudden you could have a person who had zero symptoms and yet had a positive PCR test. They now became a COVID statistic. They didn't have to have symptoms of any type. That was a major change in 2020. Prior to that, and again, my comparison is influenza because every year in long-term care homes, during the whole influenza season, we would count numbers of people. There would be a public health circulation from all the 36 homes in the Waterloo, Wellington, Lingo out of which homes had, had uh, floors that were closed down because of influenza. There may be three people, there may be four, there may be six, whatever it was, but they were people that were symptomatic. Now, all of a sudden, we're changing the definition of a case to somebody who has a positive PCR test. They may not have one COVID symptom. So that was a huge difference in practice. Never before have we ever had people labeled as being COVID positive and no symptoms or, or influenza or anything positive without symptoms. Okay, interesting. Secondly, we never called, we never talked about cases when they didn't have symptoms. 
So, so now you could have six people in a home that were COVID positive. They become six cases. They might not have any symptoms of COVID whatsoever. A year or two ago, historically, that never would have happened. If you had six people, they all had symptoms. So how maybe- often? How often were you testing people in the long-term care facilities for COVID? And how does that compare to how you would handle um, influenza season? Okay. So first of all, I personally wasn't doing any testing. I was not in there. I was still working as a consultant. Um, So people were tested basically every day. Staff was tested every day. So you would get numerous cases and more and more cases every day. The case count would go up. You also had cases in the community, whether they were elderly or whether they were just being tested at our numerous testing stations. Um, And I know when I worked with telehealth, people were told if they had symptoms and if they met criteria, which were changing every day to go to a testing center. So fear generated a lot of this unnecessary testing of perfectly healthy people. And that's another change. We never, ever, ever tested healthy people before. Mm. People right. were all diagnosed on their symptoms. So do you do you know, is it is it purely fear-based or is there an is there a different incentive for counting cases or labeling deaths as COVID? Or like is there a reason to do that? Yes, I think there is. I think there's a political agenda. My opinion, I think that's happening. There's right. there's another agenda rather than healthcare to increase the case count because never ever in almost 50 years of, of my nursing experience have we ever based cases on a single test. No diagnosis is ever made on one single symptom. Mm. All of a sudden the narrative changed and All of a sudden, a case could be a perfectly healthy person with zero symptoms, but one positive faulty test. So, and how could you speculate as to what percentage of tests would come back positive but asymptomatic? Like, do you have a rough feeling of what that number would be? Sure. Um, I don't have, um, because again, I wasn't doing the testing. Mm -hmm. So, didn't see healthy people coming in, but I know from testing centers and I know from telehealth, people would get tested if they were in the proximity of somebody who had a cold or a sniffle or because they were afraid or because their neighbor down the street had COVID or because they happened to be in the room with somebody if it was in long-term care or whatever to get tested. So people that were non-symptomatic were getting tested. So I would say probably most of the people that were tested were not symptomatic. Right. Right. Okay. And knowing that depending on where you set the cycle threshold of the PCR test, you set yourself up for a lot of false positives. It would lead you to believe that there might be a somewhat inflated case count due to the amount of asymptomatic testing that was being done. Is that where you're going with that? Well, absolutely. And we know that the cycle threshold was sometimes at 45, sometimes even at 50. So the PCR test would pick up any viral fragment that was in a person's body. A person could have had a cold two months ago. And if there was a viral fragment left, 
it would have picked up on that. So hence so many false positives. Right. You know, when, when we looked at people before historically in long-term care, they would have fever, they would have congestion, they would, if they could report, they would have some bodily aches and pains and so on. So diagnosis was made on symptomology and not on a single test when you could see nothing visually. It just made no sense at all. Hmm. So obviously inflated numbers. We, we had, I uh, was on a, a call with public health at one point and there was one woman, I believe she was 82. Um, she had been tested 12 different times. So this is another issue and another problem. And so there was some compassion around her for that. I believe she was being tested because she was on, on the threshold of coming into a retirement home. Um, and she was still cognitively very aware and alert and could self-report all these things. But she was very upset that she had been tested 12 times. So my question to public health was, I didn't believe that there were any algorithms that would now, now tie that one person to these 12 different. 12 tests, and especially if they had been done in various testing centers, and there were so many testing centers all around. So my question was, is this person who had been tested 12 times tested as one positive case or counted now as 12 positive cases? Do you, do, to clarify, did she test positive 12 times? She tested positive 12 times, yes. Right, right. And did you get an answer from public health? No, I did not. No. No, there seemed to be some roundabout calculating about it would likely be this, it would likely be that. But again, when you go to different testing centers and the volume of tests that they were doing at the time, there would have been nothing that now would have merged tests with name or health card number or anything. Right. So um, it's it's possible that you're getting duplicate Absolutely. positive cases. Um, Absolutely. And in this particular scenario, which is obviously an extreme scenario, potentially 12 positive cases that are all actually one case. For sure. Now, that would be unusual. I don't think anybody had 12, but it wouldn't be unusual for people to have two or three. Sure, sure. Especially when, um, so when I tested positive for COVID, um, my wife had to test and then halfway through her quarantine, she had to retest. And if she had tested positive on both of those, there's reason to believe, I guess, then that would have that would have been counted as two positive cases. One has to wonder. Right. Very interesting. So you mentioned ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine earlier, and those have been highly, highly um, contested ideas mm-hmm. and drugs. Um, two years, almost two years into this pandemic now, we're 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 about a month off two years. What do we know about? Um, treating COVID-19 and what do we know, what do you, what, what is your perspective on hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and what might be used for prophylaxis? Yeah. So both ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine have an extremely high safety profile with 60 years of clinical use in many, many different things with many populations. So frail elderly, pregnant, nursing mothers, compromised individuals, very high safety profile, to the point where these medications have actually been on the CDC website as drugs that should never, ever be out of production because they're so highly used and they're so highly effective. The narrative with the the COVID 
and I, I'm going to say fake vaccines, was that they got emergency use authorization because there was no effective treatment. Well, those drugs are used off-label. Ivermectin is a dewormer, but many drugs that we see used in clinical practice are used off-label. Mm -hmm. The issue would be that a physician would have to call the family member in long-term care, if that was the setting, and say to the family member, you know, we have a COVID outbreak. I would like to put your family member on some prophylactic ivermectin. It's used off-label for this purpose as an antiviral. Do we have your permission to use it? And then it would be okay to go ahead. And is Very that is that um, historically standard practice? Is that something you would see done? Yes, it would be done, especially if the physician is using a medication off-label. In long-term care, actually, anytime there's a change of medication in the family or the power of attorney doesn't need to be notified. Now, that can normally be done by the nurse or the clinical manager. Um, in this case, if a physician was using um, a medication off-label, he might choose to call or, or the, the nurse in charge might choose to call, but the family would be made aware. And that mm -hmm. would be a very, very easy way to treat people with COVID or that, that were in an environment where there was a highly contagious virus or a breakout. So I, I think there's such good evidence. You see it everywhere. You see it with the FLCCC, the CCCA. You see it with America's Frontline Doctors. There is so much evidence. In fact, over 66 studies now um, that have proven efficacy for ivermectin. If you look at, if you look at some of the, the CDC maps, even the countries that had broad use of both ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine had far fewer deaths per population than, than for example, the, the United States did. Right. And, and to clarify, that would be hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin use for its, for something other than prophylaxis, but they were using it anyway, correct? Right. They, they were using it for COVID treatment. Oh, yes. okay. So specifically for COVID treatment. Do you, can you, do you remember off the top of your head, what countries were doing that? Um, at one point, India was doing that. Africa was doing that. Um, I'm not sure which other countries were, but in the Western world countries, um, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine was pretty much banned. You know, I, I, I had my own personal experience with COVID and I was, I was sick with COVID. I actually had some ivermectin. And when I was trying to fill the prescription in the pharmacy, the pharmacist was very controversial and questioned why I was taking uh, that medication. N not really her call, but uh, it was pretty much banned here. You couldn't, you couldn't get ivermectin after probably the first number of months. And I think that was strategic. So the countries that, that were using it had a much lower death profile. Right. And so do you believe that ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and other possible prophylactics were intentionally um, demonized for the purpose of obtaining emergency use authorization on the vaccines that were rolled out? Yes, 100 percent. And where, where does that pressure come from in your estimation? How far up the ladder do you want to go? Is it do, is it is it just as simple as it it's coming from the pharmaceutical companies who are in bed with the CDC? I think it could even be higher. The World Economic Forum, I don't know the the big players, the big powers that be. Certainly, 
Pfizer, Moderna, these are big companies, billion dollar, trillion dollar companies um, that are making a lot of money. There were a lot of millionaires made during this pandemic. And uh, I think they pushed for emergency use authorization for these drugs, demonizing both ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And that became the standard. And the fear mongering of the public and people, boom went and took vaccines. So yes, I think these drugs were demonized and purposefully demonized. I mean, yeah. you go to an African country or an Indian country, people get a virus, they get the flu, they get something, they go to the corner store and they get they get a prescription for, for ivermectin. It's, you know, hydroxychloroquine, it's called Sunday, Sunday medicine. People take this like candy. So <laughs> it's used all the time. Yeah, very when interesting. You, yeah, when you think of countries like India and Africa, where they're, they are living in close, close quarters, there are five generations living together, they probably have a greater level of, of undernourishment or malnourishment than, than anybody here in North American countries. Um, and and they, uh, they live in poverty, right? And they had less physical death than, than the countries here because of things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. So right. why, why were we not allowed to use that here? Doctor, physicians were, were banned pretty well from prescribing it. Yeah, in, in, a, in a massive top-down movement, it's, it's not only that like it was discouraged to prescribe it, doctors lost their licenses due to prescribing it. Yeah, I think doctors were threatened right by the CPSO not to, and to push everybody into vaccines. I know for me in the College of Nurses, we were basically told we could not speak against vaccine mandates. So, so there was, the narrative was very much pro-vaccine and against the antivirals that were tried and true and proven. Okay, so that's very interesting. In your, I think you said 47 years of nursing experience, have you ever encountered direct censorship like what you encountered with um, being told that you weren't allowed to speak out against vaccine mandates? Never, ever, ever. In fact, the narrative used to be assessment, early treatment, informed consent, and informed consent of the public for any procedure or anything was huge. You could lose your license for doing something or facilitating the written consent of somebody when there wasn't informed consent. Never, ever have I heard this narrative. You know, the, the other narrative was, we don't do early treatment anymore. And again, that was a huge red flag for me because with cancer, diabetes, congestive heart failure, everything, early treatment is the standard of practice. You don't wait to say to somebody, wait until you can't breathe and then go to the hospital. It's you're having a problem, you need some early intervention and treatment, and then maybe we can stop this before it progresses to something worse. But again, that, that narrative had all shifted and changed. Right. So I can speak from my own experience. When I contracted COVID and went to the testing center, I tested positive and the, the physician or doctor, I mean, I don't, I don't know what, um, what rank he would have been holding. Um, he came out with my positive result. It was a, it was like an outdoor testing spot where they just tested me in my car and mm -hmm. he handed me my positive result. And the 
only communication out of him, and this is a full year into the pandemic, the only communication out of him was, do you understand that you have to quarantine? I was like, yes. And then his only other words to me were good luck. So you would think a year into a global pandemic, a Western country like Canada with what I thought to be a robust healthcare system would have some amount of guidance for what one might do when you contract COVID-19. Where are we in that story now? Where are we on early treatment? Where are we on what you might be able to do at home if you do test positive? Is there any public health indication as to what's recommended? Yeah. You know, Zach, it's, it's a good question. Early on, the practitioners that had their eyes wide open were recommending things like high-dose vitamin C, quercetin, zinc, vitamin D, um, selenium. There, were, there was a whole protocol that the FLCCC came out with, America's Frontline Doctors. That narrative was pretty much squashed by all of the other players. And it almost seemed to the point of being ridiculed. And it's unbelievable to think that somebody that was becoming ill would not be assisted or not be told that there's some things that you could do early on to try and help yourself. The narrative was very much that these things don't work. Vitamin D doesn't work. All of these things are ineffective and just wait it out. I had a friend who actually became very ill with COVID. She could not see her family doctor and it was, well, it's just one of these things. You're going to just have to wait it out and get over it. Yes, you're going to feel terrible and you're just going to have to wait it out till you get over it. Unbelievable. Like unbelievable. It made no sense. And still the narrative is, is the same. It's get your booster now. Get your third and fourth booster. So as far as you're aware, there's still no public health recommendation for one what one might do upon contracting COVID other than wait at home until you can't breathe and then go to the hospital? Yeah. Now, I haven't checked on the public health website to see if they've added anything, but basically the protocols were all from the non-mainstream centers like the FLCCC, like the Canadian COVID Care Alliance and so on. There was nothing from, from public health. Nothing. Why do you think that lapse occurred? Is it is it the same reason as before where, you know, if if the if public health admitted that, you know, if you were not vitamin D deficient, you were far less likely to catch COVID and therefore they couldn't authorize the vaccines? Is it as simple as that or is there something else going on there? Well, I think there is something very nefarious going on. I think it didn't fit with the narrative. The narrative was there's a need to get your two vaccines. That's the only way out of it. And for the 15% of the population that opted not to go with the vaccine, they chose to seek medical advice elsewhere, right? Hence the protocols that were put in place. So again, I think there's an agenda here. This is not about healthcare. If it were about healthcare and your physical well-being, it would be go outside and get some fresh air. Don't stay at home and stay safe. Don't isolate in your home when you see nobody for weeks on end and get no sunlight. Don't 
do anything that would cause you to, heaven forbid, take your mask off. Make sure that you're that you're just staying staying at home, and you're you're not taking supplements. You're not making sure that you're getting exercise. That you're doing anything that would contribute to your wellness. So unbelievable, right? All of the things that we know about health and well-being, whether it's emotionally, psychologically, or physically, all those things were taken away. Gyms were closed, restaurants, social gatherings, all of that was taken away. And, and don't get any treatment until you can't breathe. So everything that, that we formerly told people to do was gone. Right. Um, so you've been paying attention to the public health sphere far longer than I have. I, I, I mean... I think like most people, I really only truly started taking an interest in public health in you know the last two years. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the vaccine rollout and the the change in messaging that we've observed. So when these vaccines first came out, the direct messaging, and anyone who disbelieves this can go back and look if you don't remember, the messaging was, get your two shots, that's it, you're done, you can't catch it, you can't spread it. Get it to protect your neighbors because as soon as everyone gets it, that's it. And obviously, if you pay any attention, that's not the case today. In your experience, um, because I'm sure you've probably watched a couple other drugs like that roll out, um, what, what is different about this particular rollout? And have you seen other drugs go down the same path where they're released under kind of one pretense and then the pretense changes around the drug, you know, two years later. Has that happened before? Yeah. Um, I guess the closest example would be flu shots. So lots of drugs come out, but there's a testing, especially when we're talking about vaccines. So vaccines, a true vaccine takes six to 10 years in the making. So it's not a quick process. So this is the fastest anything has ever been rolled out in terms of vaccines. Um, there's a whole other procedure with other medications and other drugs. So I guess we should leave that on the table for now. But with vaccines, vaccines have all, they have never been mandatory. So take, for example, flu shots. Every year there's a flu on the best guess of what's coming from, from the, the Oriental countries. A vaccine is developed, a flu shot, right, is developed at best. And this is by the C um, 25 to 40% effective. So most people will take the flu vaccine because they think it might help. Sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't, but that's based on the old vaccine. Um, it's alive or an attenuated by vaccine. This mRNA technology has been in the making for a number of years, for quite a few years, but they've never really had a successful run in humans with MR on any vaccine. So previously, for example, if you would get a smallpox vaccine, you that provided immunity. And by the CDC's definition of vaccine, a vaccine's purpose is to provide you with immunity. So if you had the vaccine, so if you were half a year later in some kind of a cluster where you were in a room full of people with smallpox, you would not get smallpox because you are now immune. The CDC definition was strategically changed, I think, after the first series of the mRNA vaccines came out to say that they are now, a vaccine now provides 
protection. It was changed the third time, but that's very different. Protection and immunity are very, very, very different. I can put a raincoat on and that might protect me from getting in from happening and everything else. As being both safe and effective. They didn't have any data. In fact, the clinical trials in most of these aren't even finished till 2023. And yet they were deemed safe and effective and broadly told to the public and every media outlet that everybody should get one because they're safe and effective. Well, they have proven to be neither safe nor effective. I looked a couple of days ago, right on the COVID-19 Ontario website, three times as many people are now in hospital that are fully vaccinated than, than are unvaccinated. So they're neither. So this is not, I would not call this a vaccine. I would call this an experiment. It has no resemblance to a vaccine that I know a vaccine is, none. And to clarify, you would say that because um, historically speaking, the definition of a vaccine is something that provides immunity and this particular shot does not provide immunity, correct? Correct. The definition always was to provide immunity. It doesn't provide immunity. People with two shots and even three, three COVID vaccines now, they're getting sick. Well, you could take a prime minister, for example. <laughs> well, exactly. And I'm assuming that he would be triple vaccinated or at least double vaccinated and whether he has COVID or not, but he claims to have COVID, right? Yeah, so, some of us are speculating about that, I guess. <laughs> I'm speculating too, but if you're going out public saying publicly saying that vaccines are safe and effective and you say that you have had your vaccines and now you're sick, does that really indicate that they're safe and effective? Not really. Yeah. One would wonder, at least I wonder, I, I haven't observed everyone wondering, but I wonder. <laughs> I certainly wonder too, Zach. So what about the, what about the, the adoption of the, the adoption of the narrative immediately from all of the media outlets. Do you think that is just simply, was that an honest effort to, um, to just try to get information across to people because, you know, perhaps that vaccine was our one weapon against this pandemic or have you like, have you ever, have you ever seen a vaccine rollout like this before ever? I mean, I know that this is a different situation because this is a a global occurrence but i've never heard a drug so publicized before yeah i i would say i've never seen anything like this before nor have i seen people tweeting and posting on social media how proud they are to be vaccinated and double vaccinated i mean you went to the doctor and got a vaccine for something you didn't tell your neighbor that you were vaccinated who cares right it, it was a nothing thing. You didn't bother with any of that. So again, there's a global agenda here. There can be no, there can be no question about this. I mean, it's still, I heard today, I had the TV on for a while today and commercials twice were get, get your booster now, get your booster. Mm -hmm. Never have, have drugs, have vaccines been advertised on, on TV. I mean, Legacy media, we know, is owned by the 600 billion media bailout, right? So why is it that non-mainstream media can report on, wait a minute here, 
what about alternatives like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and mainstream media? You have to hush saying those words, like those words were never spoken. Why? I mean, media used to be a source of being able to question science. Well, this wasn't even science. The very nature of science is that we're questioning. Yes, no, what about this? What about that? But people that had legitimate questions, you know, people like Paul Alexander, um, Robert Malone, people like Byron Bridal from Gulf, America's frontline doctor, Simone Gold. These people were strategically deplatformed. People with 20, 30, 40, 50 years of experience, credible work have been completely maligned and deplatformed. Why is that? You know, you have to ask yourself, why is there one narrative? Safe and effective, get your vaccine. Everybody needs to be vaccinated. Why is yeah. there one narrative? It certainly feels like there is a collusion between media, um, big tech, governments, pharmaceutical companies to all push one idea. Um, but in... like kind of wrapping this up in closing as as an uh, a nurse of 47 years and in your own experience um do you have any personal recommendations as to one might as to w what one might do to take care of themselves through these next months and, and years of whatever it is we're dealing with in our public health sphere and what you might do to take care of your own health mm -hmm. so healthcare is collapsing um, I'm retired. I don't work in healthcare actively anymore, but I'm certainly in touch with many, many, many healthcare professionals. And we know that healthcare is collapsing. So you need to take responsibility for your own health. I think the number one thing you're eating properly, like throw out all the junk food, um, throw out most of the alcohol I drink now and then is great, but you know, excess is not good. Go outside, get some fresh air. Do not walk outside with a mask on and get your vitamin D level checked. Vitamin D acts like a steroid hormone. It's not really a vitamin. And the notion is that if you have a high vitamin D level, that's actually protective for your immune system. It helps when you're sick to take extra vitamin D, but you wanna have a really healthy high vitamin D level before you get sick, because that's preventative, it's an immune booster. So get a blood level vitamin D test from the lab and then dose according to what your level is. If you're low, you need to ramp up. Don't just take that standard two or 3,000 that they're telling you, but dose by vitamin D level. Make sure you're getting lots of vitamin C. Some of these, some of these um, nutrients are really hard to get just um, if, you're, if you're eating an ordinary diet. Um, make sure you're taking things like zinc, quercetin. Go to some of those alternate media sites like the FR right on your site, Zach, but there are credible, informative, amazing sites that people can go to. Um, the CCCA did a, a fabulous PowerPoint presentation, and that's right on their website where people can actually look at some of the information about vaccines, about vaccine efficacy and safety, and then alternatively what they can do. So lots of things people can do to keep themselves healthy. Yeah, I think that's something that if you haven't looked into it, a lot of people don't know is that there are a lot of very qualified doctors, physicians, and um, healthcare workers who have 
competing science that you can read. And it can be sometimes difficult and dense to try to figure out how to dig through literature. But as soon as you do start, you uh, I can speak from personal experience, you realize a lot of the literature doesn't line up with the narrative. And that's a, a pretty scary thing. Yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of these sites, even though they're professional medical sites, they're actually geared to the public. So it's very readable and, and you can assimilate that information very quickly just by going to the alternate sites. If you go to the, the Ontario Public Health site, you will never find any of those things on there. You need to go to alternate sites who are now saying, this is your choice. This is what you can do. This will be preventative for you. These are healthy practices that you can adopt, how you can supplement and so on. So I would say stop. I would say turn the TV off, in fact, and go and look at some of these alternate sites. Well, I can echo that sentiment. Definitely turn your TV off. It's time. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time and giving us your insight. Are there any last words that you want to leave our listeners with? I, you know, I guess I'm so passionate about healthcare, and I really wish someone tells them you have to get a vaccine question it, ask why, ask the physician what the stats are, ask the physician how many people are these helping, and, and look at the actual death case count. Not everybody's dying of COVID. In fact, our numbers of death have not gone up dramatically year after year after year. It's just that more things are called COVID now. So ask questions. All the medical practitioners, because they come out in a white coat, ask your own questions. And, and think, you know, with a critical mind and a, um, an inquisitive mind, don't just accept all of the things that you're being told. Yeah. Ask questions. That's important. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The CAD Story. That's The CAD Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great their country is.